As we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord through the study of his word, I'll ask you once again to bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, once again we bow in honor of you and in full dependence upon you for our understanding. Lord, we desperately need the illumination of your spirit upon us or we would understand nothing. And so, Lord, this morning as we open your word, as we hear the words from you through your servant, may they be to us the purest of honey, the sweetest of bread, the nourishment of our soul, the very essence of all that we can never live without. Allow your word to penetrate our heart and find its way deep within our very minds that we might live for you according to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll ask you once again this morning to take your Bibles and open them to our study of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, for all of us who have been studying this great epistle of Paul to the Christians in Rome, if we have followed the logical argument of Paul as he does in his argumentation to them, then we also understand that what is being said to us here in the 21st century is applicable to each and every one of us who bears the name Christian. We understand that what Paul has been saying to the Christians in Rome over 2,000 years ago is applicable for us who profess Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. In other words, not one of us has been left out. There isn't some person who actually is a believer to whom these words do not apply. If we are truly Christian, then you and I have an actual and present union with Jesus Christ. This world is not your home. This place that we presently live is not our home. We have been united with Jesus Christ and we have been given everything that we need to live godly lives in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not one of us is lacking in any of that. And what we have in our text this morning is one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture as to what it precisely means to be a Christian. If I was to ask you this morning that very question, what does it mean to be a Christian, we would probably get numerous and varied answers. And the statement that I want to draw our attention to this morning is the answer to that very question if it was to be asked of the Apostle Paul. We began this larger section a couple of weeks ago and we are picking up where we left off in our previous study of Romans chapter 6. And the section begins in verse 15. And like the first section that began in verse 1 and went down through 
verse 14, the second section begins in the same way. It begins with a question. It is a question that is born out of the hearing about the reality and the benefits that are enveloped in the declaration of righteousness that you and I have as Christians before God simply by faith in Jesus Christ. Just by way of reminder, Paul summarized it for us in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 5. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All people are guilty before God. Why? Because we all are attached in our humanity to Adam, our first parents. In Adam we all sinned when he sinned. Therefore, we sin now because having been in Adam, we are sinners by nature. But God sent us another Adam. God sent us a better Adam. He is God in the flesh. He is Jesus Christ. He is the one who obeyed the Father perfectly. He is the one who paid the price of our redemption through His own shed blood in death. Why? So that we, the many, would be made by God. We should be declared justified by faith. We are made righteous before God by Jesus Christ. So no longer are we attempting then in our own ways to become acceptable to God by keeping rules and regulations of morality, of our own divine system of right and wrong, and however we might define that level of morality. The law, even the law written in our hearts, only shows us how much we fail to obey, how much we fail to do what is right. But where that sin increases, grace super increases, super abounds, so that, Paul says, as sin ruled in death, now for us, for the Christian, grace rules the day because of righteousness and for righteousness. So does that mean then, as Christians, that we can and ought to just sin because we are under grace? Paul says, no way, that's just ludicrous thinking. In fact, what is true of that is that it is impossible. It is an impossible position for the Christian to continually and forevermore go on abusing grace when you know Jesus Christ. Why? Because of who you are in Christ. What has happened to you through that unity with Jesus Christ. Paul sums that up in chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. Where he says, 
Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? We have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. And if you become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly you'll also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing that your old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. And if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. For death is no longer a master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You see, for the Christian. We have to realize that all that took place with Christ has, in fact, taken place with us. We say we believe it. Paul says we must continuously consider that. We must, as one of my early professors said in seminary, we must preach the gospel to ourselves all the time. We must consider it, as Paul said, we actually died with Christ. We actually were buried with Christ. We actually were raised to a new life with Christ. So how can we just go on sinning because we stand in grace? Impossible to even imagine such a thing, let alone actually remain in that condition. Verse 11 tells us that very thing. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Live your life in obedience to righteousness. That's the implication of Paul. You say, okay, okay. So it's wrong for me to be a grace abuser. It's wrong for me as a Christian who is attached to Christ to go on and abuse the grace of God in my life. But since I'm not under a rule book anymore for attaining righteousness, since I don't have to follow the rules of some kind of level of morality in order to try to be acceptable to God, doesn't that mean then that it has freed me up to sin in any way I want because the law has no bearing on me anymore? This is the essence of the second question. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? However, Paul says this too is a ridiculous question if we understand our justification before God. In other words, there's no way justification implies, there's no way justification allows in any kind of way that reality of sinning simply because you're not under a system by way you make yourself acceptable before God. And it is here that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, tells us why. Last time we were here, I told us that Paul begins with a simple general principle. This is not specifically a spiritual argument that Paul begins with. It's just a general principle. Just by way of reminder, verse 16, don't you know? In other words, this is just common sense to humanity. This is God-given common sense. Don't you know that when you present yourselves to someone, we could even say to anything, 
As slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Simply put, in a general way, when you go about obeying anything, you are its slave. doesn't matter what it is. That's the general principle of truth. Whatever you are doing is what you are obeying. Whatever it is you are doing by way of act or by way of attitude, in that very moment, you are its slave. It is, in the words of Paul, ruling you. So, if it's sin... If it's an attitude or an action of some kind of sin, sin is simply a disobedience uh, to God, to a disobedience to His commands in our life. That's what sin is. And all sin is a heart issue. It's a heart issue that manifests itself in the actions of our lives. That's what sin is. It's a disobedience to God that's born in the heart. So if it is sin, then at that moment, we are its slaves. As we learned and were reminded of last time, every sin is a personal choice we make. Every sin is a choice we make. In other words, we do not sin and we do not live righteously because someone makes us do it. We live the way we live by personally submitting to a ruler. Personally. Conscious choice. So listen, if anger is your issue, if you are an angry person, that that is the way in which sin is manifested in some way in part of your life, if anger is your issue, it is you who choose to respond and be angry. That's the way you have chosen in those moments to sin. No one and no thing is making you angry. If your sin has to do with the lust of the eyes, whatever it is your eyes want, your desire of those things, or the desires and boastful pride of life, however your sin is manifested in your life, however it comes out, whatever form it is, it's a choice that is formed first in the heart, and then it gives way, it manifests itself, to the act of sinning. We present ourselves as slaves to the one we are obeying. That's what Paul is saying. That's the general principle. It applies to Christian and non-Christian alike, except the non-Christian has no ability to overcome that. The non-Christian has no way of making the right choice. They always choose sin. They always choose to glorify self, no matter how high or how low the self-gratification is. It's a choice. We are owned by the one we are obeying. So we have to realize this as Christians. We have to realize there are only two great powers that are desiring to dominate us. They are dramatically opposed to each other. And it's impossible for any one of us to be controlled by both at the same time. It's impossible. Each and every one of us 
or loudly proclaiming which power is ruling us in the moment by the way we live in that moment. Now, I pray that that is a bit shocking for us to recognize. I pray that that says, wait a minute. That shocks me just to hear that truth. Why do I say that? Because it's very easy for us as people, it's very easy for us even, especially as Christians, to buy off on the lie that I do what I do because of outside forces that cause me to sin. It's easy for us to say, well, I do that or I've done that because that's the way I was raised or that's how I grew up or that's the outside forces of the world shaping me into its ways. But that is not true. Certainly all those things have influences and certainly all those things are real and we have gone through all those things. But that isn't why, that isn't the cause of our sinfulness. That isn't the cause of choosing to do something sinful or not for the Christian. And that is what makes the question in verse 15 so ridiculous for a Christian to ask. When we're talking about true believers, this is a ridiculous question because a life of continual, a life of continually not dealing with sin in the Christian is a complete contradiction to what a Christian is and what a Christian is to be. And so, in verse 17 and 18, the general principle is applied then to us. To the Christian. This obedience slave principle. And it's applied in such a way as to describe what a true Christian is. Now notice the first truth that is laid out for us concerning the true Christian. Notice what Paul says in verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin. You can stop right there. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin. We cannot miss the importance of what is being said here. We cannot miss the impact and drive of the words upon our heart from God himself through the Apostle Paul. What the scripture is saying is this. An actual Christian is a person whom God has changed. A Christian is a person whom God actually changes. Notice it says, you were slaves of sin. You were slaves of sin. Don't miss the tense of words when you read them in the Scriptures. In other words, for each and every Christian... For each and every one who is truly saved, what is being stated in this phrase was true of us, but it is no longer true of us. In other words, through justification, or by means of understanding that and realizing all that we have in Jesus Christ, we are in a completely different position than when it was before justification. Justification has completely changed everything for us. We were slaves of sin, but now 
presently and actually by means of uniting with Jesus Christ, we are not that anymore. That is our new position. Therefore, we need to fully comprehend something about each and every one of us who profess Jesus Christ as our Savior. We need to understand something. None of us were physically born into that position. You know, some of us grew up in a church. I grew up in a church. It's very easy for someone who grows up in a church, who attends to the church all the time, who, whose parents are saved and raises them under the tutelage of the truth and nurture of the Lord, to sometimes get this idea that because I've been around the church, because I know the language of the church, because I'm in the church, because I'm a family of Christian people, that I myself somehow am a Christian. None of us have been born into this position. Something had to happen to us before we became a Christian. In fact, if something did not happen to us, then we would still be in our old position. And Paul says, but thanks be to God that it did. Thanks be to God. We were guilty of sin, the sin with Adam. When Adam committed it, we were as guilty as Adam. We sinned in Adam. That's why we were sinners. That's what we are by nature. Nobody is born a Christian. So in order to become a Christian, it is absolutely necessary that each and every person be changed. It's an oxymoron for someone to say they believe in Jesus Christ and their life has not changed at all. We need, as it is stated in John's Gospel, we need to be born again. We need to rack our minds with the reality of what Nicodemus racked his minds with when Jesus Christ said to him, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this, you must be born again. In Nicodemus' mind, because he was thinking on earthly levels, because he was thinking of righteousness by means of works, Nicodemus said, how in the world can that happen? How can a man enter into the womb of his mother and be born again? Jesus said, you must be born by the Spirit. Each and every one of us must be born again. We are a new creation. Something has to happen to us. So listen, this is not some small renovation. This is not taking out a new can of paint and painting the walls and changing the color of the room and saying, hey, look, it looks different now. No, this is a complete change. This is a new creation. This is total demolition. Complete rebuilding. So, think about it. If you are a true Christian, then you are a completely new person. You have a new position. You are a new person. You have not simply had a newer veneer put over the top of your old self. That is not who you are. You are new altogether. And so, the first, first thing we realize a Christian is... They are a person who has undergone an actual and complete change. That can only be explained 
by the words that Paul uses when he says it here, you were this, but you're not that anymore. You were slaves of sin, but you're not that anymore. Something monumental has happened to you, the Christian, and listen, God is to be thanked for it. That's what Paul says. Thanks be to God for what God has done. Now, I said earlier that when we sin, we are slaves to the one we are obeying at that moment. As a Christian, when we sin, our position hasn't changed. We are still in Christ, and yet we are obeying something by which in that moment we are offering ourselves and becoming the slave of that very thing. And that that sin is born in the heart. It's born in the heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23, encourages us in this way. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence because from it flow the springs of life. Of course, we understand that Solomon, in writing that, is not talking about the blood-pumping organ that's in your body. He's not talking about the very organ in your chest that is pumping blood throughout your body. What he is meaning is the very center of who we really are. That's what the Hebrew mindset understood about the heart. It was, it was who you really were. From within us, Solomon is saying, from the heart, from who we are, from the real you, comes the waters that feed your life. Jesus spoke of the heart in this way in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus Christ being challenged by the Pharisees on a regular basis as he interacted with the Pharisees out of love for their very souls, their challenging him in reference to keeping the ceremonial law of doing certain things, not following the law, because that in their mind was what defiled a man. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. What Jesus is saying is not the words of the mouth are the things that are defiling the man, but the, what comes out of the mouth proves what's in the heart. It shows the heart to be a place of defilement. In other words, those things that are on the outside show what is being submitted to on the inside. And so Paul says the true Christian is one who was a slave of sin, but now you're different. Now you're different. Why? Why are you different? Because God changed your heart. Because God changed the inner you. And because of what God did, you notice, notice what happens. Verse 17, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You see, the root is changed. The root system is changed. And if the root system is changed, the fruit that is produced by it is changed. This is why behavioral modification is worthless. 
This is why any system in the world, the world tries to deal with the problems of life with what they would call, quote-unquote, coping mechanisms. Just learn how to cope with certain things. Learn little techniques to slow your breathing down and do all these kind of things so that you can cope with the issue. God doesn't want you to cope with the issue. God wants you to have victory. Behavioral modification doesn't give you victory. All it does is give you a, a veneer over the top of trouble. What really will change is when the root system is changed. If you change the root system, the fruit becomes different fruit. I remember years ago when I was in high school, they had this day where somehow it came about where the guys would buy carnation flowers for the girls in the school and you could buy different colored carnation flowers. And I was always curious how they got blue carnations and red carnations and all these different kind of carnations because all they never bought was white ones. Come to find out that they put the carnations in colored water and the colored water would suck up into the flower and the flower would become the color of the water it was in. We become the color of the water in the heart if the root is changed the fruit produced is changed what is that that you have obeyed in the heart Paul says notice verse 17 you became obedient from the heart to what to that form of teaching what is that that's doctrinal truth That's what the original language idea is. It's doctrinal truth. In other words, your complete personhood has been changed by the truth. Your complete personhood. Who you are. What you disobeyed gladly before is now what you desire to obey. All the things of Scripture that you gladly disobeyed and went on disobeying because that's what you did, that's who you were, that's the root system, that's what flowed from you. You gladly did that. Now the things you didn't want to do, you love to do in the Scriptures. You, your complete personhood has changed. Your will has changed. You say, how do you know it's your will? Because he says you became obedient. That's the will. You became obedient. Your your will desires to do what is new. You became obedient where? From the heart. There's been a change in the root system. That's that from you, you became obedient. That's your will from the heart. You know what that is? Your emotions. Your emotions. Your emotions have been edited by God. They have been changed. You became obedient from the heart and your mind has been changed. How do we know? Because we learn doctrine with our minds. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching, to that doctrine. You obeyed that form of doctrine from the heart. So a Christian is a completely changed person. Completely changed. The will has been changed, the emotions have been changed, the mind has been changed. So now listen, God does not, God, our Father, 
who saved us, thanks be to God, Paul says, God does not change only a part of us. He does not go, okay, yeah, I'm going to save you, and I'm only going to give you three good roots. The rest will be bad, but I'll give you at least part of that. He does not do that. He changes every part of us as his people. But here's the most important of all the changes that are ours as Christians. God changes our will, our emotions. He changes our very mind. But, but there's a thing that's even more important to that, and that is this. We have a new owner. We have a new owner. Before, we were slaves of sin. In the words of Ephesians chapter 2, we were all by nature children of what? Wrath. Our owner was wrath. It was We were children of wrath. We were born in that. We were, before God's work of redemption in us and upon us, we were in the domain of darkness, Colossians tells us. Under the rulership of sin. But God be thanked, verse 17, that even though we were born into that condition, God rescued us. He placed us into the kingdom of His Son. Notice verse 18. And having been freed from sin. And having been freed from sin. That's a perfect tense in the original language. Having been is the idea of something happened to us and it has continual results forever and ever and ever. Having been, that's new ownership. So not only have we been changed internally, but we have been changed externally. The ownership of us has changed completely. It's no longer sin. Now our owner is righteousness. We once were owned by sin. Now we are owned by righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so here's the implication. Okay, We're always thinking about that. Well, uh, give me something to hang on to. Give me something I can put in some, as, as my wife and I talk about, put some wheels on. I put some feet on this. What are the implications? Here it is. What in the world are we doing as Christians submitting ourselves to the old master of sin? There's the implication. Here's who you were owned by. Here's who you are owned by. It is a complete change in you. So what in the world are you doing submitting yourself to the old master? You see the ridiculousness of that? You see the ridiculousness in Paul's argumentation by way of dismantling the question, what, shall we just sin because we're not under law but under grace? Ridiculous. We are completely changed. How did this great change happen? How did it happen? Paul says it was obedience to the form of teaching. He became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching. What teaching? What doctrine? What was it? Well, I submit to you today that it was the true gospel. It was the true gospel. It was the very message that Paul laid out for us in the first chapters of this letter. 
been so long ago, some of us have forgotten that. Chapter 1, verse 16 and through 18. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why, Paul? Because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed. Or the wrath of God is already revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth away, who push it aside, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's the gospel, you see. It's true conversion is not simply about being forgiven, folks. True conversion is not simply saying, oh, I'm forgiven by Jesus. Oh, I've talked to God and He and I have an agreement and I'm forgiven. No, true conversion, true Christianity is about bringing all things in obedience to Christ. Not just saying that I'm okay with God and He's forgiven me. We could never do any of that on our own. None of us have the power to change our slave owner. None of us. It took a stronger, a greater owner who had to come and overtake our old owner and free us from him. Paul says, that's what God did. That's what God did. You say, well, how did He do it? Through the form of doctrine, through the gospel to which you were committed. To which you were committed. We can get confused by those that last phrase. Teaching to which we were committed. Well, sometimes we think, well, yeah, when I'm sitting, I'm not committed to it anymore. No. That's not what he's talking about. Some people jokingly have said to me, I need to be committed. No, I don't. I'll tell you why. I've already been committed. We cannot understand this the wrong way. We have to understand that the gospel is not something we commit ourselves to. The gospel is not something that you just one day found out you liked. The gospel is not something you commit yourself to. None who are true Christians committed themselves to the gospel. I did not commit myself to the gospel. You did not commit yourself to the gospel. The only reason that we are Christians, if we are true Christians, the only reason that we are Christians is because God delivered us over to His gospel. You were committed to it. You were delivered to it. This is the only reason we believe it. That's what Paul means when he writes those words. Thanks be to God that God committed you to the teaching you heard. Thanks be to God that God delivered you to it. Paul is saying, listen, you were slaves of sin. You were slaves of sin. You could never have released yourself from the shackles of that master. Eternal death, punishment forever and ever and ever was and is its eternal outcome. But, thanks be to God, 
thanks be to God that though you were in that position, though you were in that condition, He came along and delivered you over to His gospel. The doctrine that you believed. And He freed you to a new owner. The owner righteousness. You have been freed and become a slave of righteousness, verse 18 says. Let me ask us all a question. Who has committed you to the gospel doctrine? Who has committed you to the gospel doctrine? There's only one answer. God did it. Only one could free me to that. Only one could give me over to that. It was God who did it. Let me read for us Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and following, and see if you hear it now a bit different, understanding what Paul has said here in verses 17 and 18 of Romans chapter 6. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. What were those, Paul? They were the things in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we also all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's all of God. It is God who delivers us over to this new life. How ridiculous. How ridiculous it is to not walk in it. Paul says similar truth to the Colossian believers. Chapter 1 of Colossians. Paul says, for this reason, verse 9, and then jump down to verse 12, giving thanks to the Father 
who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How did he do that? Verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. God did that. Now notice verse 3. Therefore, or chapter 3. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ... In other words, if that's true of you, if this is who you are, if you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, God did all that. If that's true of you, if you've been raised up with Christ, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Why? Because you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So therefore, verse 5, consider your members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Do you realize what Paul's saying there when he says, which amounts to idolatry? He's not just talking about greed when he says at the end. He's talking about all of those things are idolatry. In other words, to not do what God has commanded of us to do, to not live like that in those moments, it is momentary for the Christian. It is momentary idolatry. We are worshiping somebody other than God because we are saying to God, what you say to me isn't worth a hill of beans to follow. I'll follow the other one. That's idolatry. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. It's idolatry. For it's because of these things, verse 6, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put aside all anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its practices. Put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of of the one who created him, in which there is no distinction, Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, it really doesn't matter, where Christ is all and in all. We're all equal in Jesus Christ. So, verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, beyond all these things, love, this perfect bond of unity, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You say, well, how is that supposed to carry itself out in life? Paul goes on in chapter four or chapter three, verse eighteen. Wives, here's how it carries out for you in the home. Be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, here's how it is for you. Husbands, love your wives and don't be embittered against them. Children, how are you supposed to live? Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for it's well and pleasing to the Lord. Well, what about fathers and children? Fathers, don't exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Well, what about workers? Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on the earth. 
not with external service, as those who just please men, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, knowing you're going to receive from the Lord a reward. Bosses, owners, masters, how are you supposed to do? Masters, chapter 4, grant your slaves justice, fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. All people, devote yourself to prayer. Keep alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. Verse 5 of chapter 4, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Make the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You see? Very, very practical. Very practical. Very, very practical. So a Christian is a person whom God has completely changed. Completely changed in their mind. Completely changed in their emotions. Completely changed in their will. Someone with a new owner over them. It was all accomplished by God. They didn't accomplish any of it. So, how then do we know that that has truly happened to us? How do we know? What's the result of being committed by God to gospel truths? Right? What's the result of the obedience from the heart to the form of teaching to which we were committed by God. What's the result of that? There's only one word, really, and it's right there in the text. Obedience. Obedience. How do we know the change is real? How do we know the change has happened to us? Obedience. A willingness to obey. Do you notice what Paul doesn't say in verse 17? He does not say, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you expressed faith in the gospel. You notice he doesn't say that. He could say that, but he doesn't say that. These words are very specific. They were chosen by the Spirit of God so that we would hear them exactly as God intended it. It is not an expressed faith. He doesn't say that. He says, as Christians, we became obedient. Certainly that's the product of belief. We obey the teaching. We obey the doctrine. We obey the truth, you see. We obey the truth. True Christians are not people who simply believe. They are people who show that belief in obedience. You say, really, Pastor? I'm struggling with that. How, how do you really know that? I mean, I know you've shown it here, but, but it seems like it's an inference. Well, I'll just take you to John chapter 2. We've been through this 89 weeks ago, maybe. John chapter 2, frightening verses. Frightening verses. Jesus has been ministering. And he was speaking in the temple in John chapter 2, verse 21. Speaking about the temple of his body, about raising it up in three days. 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, verse 23 says, during the feast, many believed in his name. That word in the original language is the word for faith, pistuo. It's, it's faith. Many believed with the, this idea of faith. And what were they believing in? They were observing his signs, which he was doing. He's doing miracles. They're saying, ooh, I believe that guy. But what's frightening is verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Now, the translators write the word entrusting there as their translation. You know what word that is in the original language? The same word for believe. They were believing in Jesus, but Jesus wasn't believing in them. Why? Because he knew all men. And because he didn't need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. They said they were believing, but they were not following. They wanted the Jesus that they wanted because it was going to do something for them, fix their life in some kind of way. Listen, Jesus doesn't want to fix your life. He wants you righteous. He wants you righteous. He wants to fix your eternity. True Christians are not people who simply believe. They're people who obey. Those who say that they believe and have no interest whatsoever in obedience are not Christians. You have been committed by God to the gospel. You are now, as a Christian, a slave of righteousness. You have been freed from the penalty and the power of sin. So go and live as a slave of righteousness. This is what the grace of God in Christ teaches us. Let's listen to the words of Titus, and I'll end with this. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. We know the implications of that word grace there. It entails everything about Jesus Christ and all the benefits we have by being in Christ if we're true Christians, right? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And what is it doing? It's instructing us, verse 12 of Titus 2, instructing us to what? deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. How? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, this is amazing, who gave himself for us. Why? Why did Christ give himself for us? What was the main purpose to... to for our lives. It was to, to save us, right? To, to deny ungodliness, instruct us in all those things. He gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from every lawless deed. Christ came. Christ died. Christ went to the cross. Christ lived a perfect life. Christ is our sacrifice in order to redeem us, the Christian, from every lawless deed and, he says, to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. That's why we've been saved. Not so that we 
can go on sinning any way we want because we're no longer under some kind of try and attempt to be righteous. For the Christian, obedience is inevitable. Why? Because the gospel makes it inevitable. Faith is obedience. The person who is saved has undergone a massive change. So let's live according to it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this passage, just these few short words, really, and all that is there for us to understand. What an amazing reality, knowing what you have accomplished for us that we could never do ourselves. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness we find in Jesus Christ in light of the reality of our own foolish sinfulness. Now, Lord, by your power, according to the mercy and grace, according to the standing we have before you in innocence through Jesus Christ by faith, Father, motivate us by whatever means necessary to depend upon you in all things, to follow you, to obey you. Open our eyes to areas where we need to forsake sin. Help our hearts to rejoice in all things as we give thanks to you for the victories you have given us, small and great, that your name would be glorified in and through our lives as we walk according to your word. We praise you for all of it, for you're the only one due any glory and honor, because it's all of you. In Christ's name, amen.